0: Good morning. If going to turn to Galatians chapter 5 in your Bibles, I hope you're enjoying this beautiful Sunday, first Sunday of November. Um, I wanted to mention before I read the passage, we've had it in the bulletin for the last several weeks. Um, but yeah, once again, I just wanted to say if anybody has not been baptized uh, and is interested in getting baptized, I'd be more than happy to have a discussion with you about that. It's an important thing. It's something that Christ commands His followers to do as a outward sign and remembrance of the gospel that we are dead to sin and that we are risen with Christ, and it is something that is an important step in our faith. And so, again, I am more than happy to discuss that with you, especially if you've never been baptized, um, but that's something that's uh, very important in the church and for Christians to do. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, I'll read the passage. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for this day and for the many blessings and for your many graces and the goodness that you give to us on a daily basis, Lord. We want to continue to lift up people in need of prayer. We pray for Courtney Davis, Lord, and uh, continued treatments that she needs for the cancer that she's battling. And Lord, it was undoubtedly frustrating news this week to hear that more treatment needs to be done. And so we just pray for her. We pray for peace. We pray for her family, for her husband, for her kids, for John and Lori, Lord. And we just pray for, for healing, for good reports, for good outcomes. And Lord, for just peace and for patience in this next round of treatment. Lord, we wanna pray for Vanna, who's on the mend, feeling better, just wanna continue to pray that she continues to feel better and better over the coming hours, coming days. Lord, it's cold and flu season, stuff's going around, and we just pray for this congregation, that we be in good health. Lord, we pray for the elections this week, and Lord, that we just be faithful, that regardless of what happens, regardless of winners and losers, Lord, that you are ultimately the one who's on the throne, that you are the one who is ultimately the king, And may we trust in that in all circumstances. Lord, we also pray this day on the Sunday of prayer for the persecuted church. We lift up Christians in parts of the world that don't enjoy the freedoms that we do. Lord, in spite of persecution and tyranny, that your gospel continues to go forward. And we pray for those people, Lord, that they not lose heart, that they continue to press on and remain faithful to you, Lord. And we praise you for that. Lord, we praise you that your word continues In spite of opposition, Lord, it is a fallen world, it is a world of darkness, may the light continue to spread, and may we be people who continue to share that light. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Lasting for 302 days in 1916, the Battle of Verdun was the longest continuous battle of the First World War. It was at Verdun where 300,000 French and German soldiers lost their lives, and upwards of a half million more were wounded. It's estimated that 60 million artillery shells were fired in the battle, and upwards of 15 million of those never detonated. Not just at Verdun, but throughout the battlefields of the Great War, millions of unexploded artillery shells are still underground. The image behind me is a modern-day photo from the fields of Verdun. The countryside rolls with the craters left in the aftermath of the artillery bombardments. The war is over, but the scars remain. When the war ended, what do you do with a battlefield like that? Before the war, it had been farmland, but with all of the metals that were blasted into the land, all of the unexploded ammunition that remained buried underground, canisters of toxic gas that had not been used. The land was too dangerous to work in, let alone live in. When the war ended, hundreds of miles of land along the Western Front were deemed uninhabitable. In the most dangerous areas, they left it to nature to reclaim the land. Experts believe that it could take more than 700 years for the areas most severely impacted to be safe for human habitation. In the most hard hit areas, The impact of a war that ended over a century ago are still felt. There are still parts of France and Belgium where local water supplies are contaminated with chemicals from the war. Every year, they have what they call the iron harvest, where farmers unearth hundreds of thousands of pounds of unexploded shells, as well as bullets, old grenades, barbed wire, and other war materials. Clearing the devices can be dangerous work. France has a government agency tasked with clearing out these antique explosives. Since 1946, more than 600 French disposal workers have died in the line of duty. The war is over, but the scars remain. But gradually, little by little, while some of these lands remain prohibited, some of the once forbidden areas are now once again safe for human use. Environments which were left devastated by the war are being restored. It's better than it was during the war, but not as good as it will be in the future. It's a work in progress. And in that, there's a metaphor for the Christian experience. When you come to faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven in that moment. But the restoration lasts a lifetime. And in fact, the restoration will not be fully complete until you are in the presence of the Lord. To be a Christian is to be born again. That is the new spiritual life which the Lord imparts to a new believer. And because of that new spiritual life, God is renewing and restoring you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Little by little, the Lord is working in you. There are times when the growth might seem slower than others. There are times when it can feel like we're going two steps forward, one step back. But the Lord is at work. And he's in the process of bringing renewal and restoration in your life. Again, we're forgiven of all of our sins when we come to faith, but that's not the same thing as being freed from the struggles and temptations of our sins. We're not where we used to be, but we're also not where we're going to be because we still have sinful habits and vices we've established and which are hard to break, dysfunction we've experienced in our own lives, traumatic experiences from which we are still healing. Dealing with regrets and shame of life in a fallen world, areas of moral blindness that we didn't even realize were sinful. Those things impact us. They impact how we live, how we forgive, how we love. We're forgiven in Christ, but all the brokenness doesn't vanish because all of that impacts who we become. God works all things for good for those who love the Lord. But that does not mean that he erases all of the bad things. The war is over, but the scars remain. I think of that picture from the battlefield at Verdun. It's a striking image of the devastation that mankind can inflict upon the earth. But for me, at least, it also gives reason to hope. You see the beauty and the greenery of the land. You see a land that was destroyed and devastated by war, yet it's also a land that has a better future. Last week, we talked about justification by faith, and that's important. It's a central doctrine to the Christian faith. In this week's passage, we'll talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. And Paul will question how the Christians in Galatia, who had received the Holy Spirit by faith, had then resorted to trying to earn salvation by adherence to the law. They were trying to finish what Christ began. And we're trying to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. And that will be our main idea for the passage this morning, is that we were dead in sin because we cannot follow the law, but new spiritual life is given by the one who fulfilled the law. And we'll look at today's passage in three parts. The gospel of grace, the Holy Spirit in our salvation, and the assurance of the gospel. And those are all really big theological ideas. That when you come to faith spiritually, there are many things that happen. You're born again, you're justified, you're sanctified, just to name a few. And in this passage, we see several of these themes working together as Paul contrasts the truth of the gospel against false teachings, against false teachers who brought a false gospel. And with that, we'll jump into our passage. First part the gospel of grace. At the beginning of our passage, Paul will point to the gospel that he had preached in the churches in Galatia. But first, he will point to the people having been led astray. First part of verse 1, "'O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you?' As we've seen elsewhere in this book, Paul does not mince words. Now to our sensibilities, this might seem unnecessarily harsh. But his point isn't to be abusive, he's responding to Christian believers who are starting to live according to another gospel, and he's calling them back to the truth. In other places in this letter, Paul calls the Galatians brothers, he refers to them as my children. So we should not lose sight of the fact that Paul loves these people. I want to focus for a moment on Paul's use of the word foolish, because he'll say that again in verse 3. If I called you foolish, you'd probably be pretty offended. You wouldn't think that was very nice. But what does foolish mean? In the Bible, foolishness is contrasted with wisdom. It's the wise one who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. The fool goes his own ways and does that which is unwise. But Paul is addressing people who had heard and received the true gospel but who are turning away to a different message. That's foolish. And that's a reason why it's important that churches constantly preach the gospel. I remember one time I was driving and I was in the car and going across different radio stations. I came across a radio preacher whose sermons were being broadcast. I forget who the pastor was. This was a few years ago. But in the opening introduction to the show, they they mentioned something about practical biblical teaching. And sadly, I think that's what a lot of ministers do. They want to basically be a self-help speaker about finances or how to raise good kids or how to have a good marriage. And certainly, the Bible addresses those things, but if the chief thing you're looking for in God's word is practicality, you're starting with the wrong motivation. You start with the gospel, and you see the practical implications in light of that. Because there is nothing more important, there is nothing more practical, there is nothing more applicable than the gospel message that we were dead in sin, but that Jesus offers grace. And a church that isn't preaching the gospel will be a church full of people who aren't believing the gospel. Back in our text, the word that gets translated as bewitched means to exert evil influence. It's the only time that word is used in the New Testament. When Paul asks, who has bewitched you, the answer to that question is twofold. Most obviously, the false teachers who had infiltrated the Galatian churches were the ones leading the Galatian Christians away from the truth of the gospel. But based on Paul's language and his use of the term, bewitch, There are also spiritual overtones to this false teaching, and Paul suggests that the devil himself is at work against the gospel and sowing confusion and lies. Second part of verse 1, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, he's not saying that the people in these communities had literally witnessed the crucifixion But in the public portrayal of the crucifixion, Paul is pointing to the gospel having been proclaimed in these churches, that the Galatians had heard the truth and had responded to the gospel. But now they were turning away from that. Now when we see these things in the church, there's always the risk of a person who never truly believed the gospel in the first place. That maybe that's why they're turning away. But with Paul in this instance, that doesn't seem to be his tone. It's more that he's writing to people who are believers in the gospel, but whose theology and practice have gotten out of step with the truth, and so he's calling them back to the cross. He doesn't seem to view them as people who are false converts, but rather as misguided converts. In hearing the message of the gospel, they heard a message of a savior who died to forgive. The gospel is not the message of a savior who died for us and then gave us a to-do list to earn salvation. We were dead in sin because we cannot follow the law, but new spiritual life is given by the one who fulfilled the law. We come to our second point, the Holy Spirit in our salvation. Beginning in verse 2, Paul says, let me ask you only this, and then he proceeds to ask six consecutive questions, which is why he's the greatest preacher of all time. At the heart, all of the questions are trying to get to the same truth, and that is related to how a person becomes a Christian. Second part of verse 2, we see the first of these questions. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul will repeat that same question at the end of verse 5. I talked a little bit about the Holy Spirit in the beginning, and I can't stress enough the idea that the Holy Spirit is not some special add-on to the gospel. The Holy Spirit is not reserved for the super spiritual Christians, that the Spirit is essential to the new covenant which was ushered in by Christ, and it is Jesus who had promised the apostles that the Spirit would indwell his followers in the new age. John chapter 16, verse 7, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus tells the disciples, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In today's passage, Paul asks how a person receives the Holy Spirit. Is it through works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's a rhetorical question. It's through faith. In the same way that you can't earn salvation, you cannot earn or work your way into having the Holy Spirit. It is a gift from a gracious God to His people. The gospel is not about trying to earn salvation by following the law. It comes from knowing that you cannot follow the law, which is why you need the gospel. But that can be hard because, as I've said before, we're earners by nature. And so the Galatians fell into the trap that can so often be so difficult for Christians to avoid, of thinking that our standing with God is based on our performance. Grace is challenging, but it's the only way to God. In the Old Testament, they had looked forward to a coming day when the Lord would pour out His Spirit on His people. We see this talked about in the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. We see this prophecy come to fruition with the outpouring of the spirit in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. In one of the most important passages in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36. The Lord talks about giving His Spirit to His people, Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, will the giving of the Spirit be because people are so good at following the law? No. Next verse, 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." Part of the benefit of the spirit is the fact that it is through the spirit that the Lord will enable us to follow His commands and to live for Him. So we have the spirit which enables us to follow the ways of the Lord. It's not the other way around where we follow the law and are given the spirit, and again, That's what the Old Testament teaches, and Paul is calling out a church that has been influenced by people trying to still impose the Old Testament and the law on them. And when you think about it, it's pretty ironic that these early Christians were the first generation of those who had received the Spirit in the New Covenant. They were living breathing examples of the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies about the work of the Spirit, and yet they're resorting back to the law. Because to truly understand the prophets of the Old Testament, the Lord had always pointed to a future time when it would be His Spirit leading His people in righteousness. So Paul communicated the gospel, the message was heard, the Spirit was given, people were born again but then others infiltrated the church and preached a false gospel of law. And that's why Paul is so fired up, because law is not the gospel. I love this quote from John Stott, who's a New Testament scholar and pastor, passed away about a decade ago. He says, this is the difference between them. The law says, do this. The gospel says, Christ has done it all. The law requires work of hum, works of human achievement. The gospel requires faith in Christ's achievement. The law makes demands and bids us obey. The gospel brings promises and bids us believe. So the law and the gospel are contrary to one another. They are not two aspects of the same thing or interpretations of the same Christianity. At least in the sphere of justification, as Luther says, The establishing of the law is the abolishing of the gospel because the gospel matters. End quote, by the way. We were dead in sin because we cannot follow the law, but new spiritual life is given by the one who fulfilled the law. We come to our third point. I think it's helpful to look at verse 2 into verse 3. So, verse 2 ends Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Verse 3 begins, Are you so foolish? Once again, it's a rhetorical question. His point is that they did not receive the Spirit by works. Rest of verse 3, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Here, the answer should not be in doubt. The Spirit was received by faith. And so you cannot start adding law onto that. Paul words it as being perfected by the flesh. His point is that we cannot use our works to achieve perfection. You don't begin with the Spirit and then switch to the law. It's the Spirit from beginning to end. And praise the Lord for that. That's the reason why we can have assurance of our salvation. That a born again believer who is forgiven in Christ has a salvation that cannot be lost because of the justifying work of Christ. And the guarantee that he has given us of the Holy Spirit. Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 1 In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And what good news that is that we are not the ones who sanctify ourselves. You didn't save yourself in the beginning, and you will not be responsible to save yourself in the end. And, again, that's good news because we'd all be in trouble. The gospel is the Spirit working in you because of what Christ has done on the cross. I know I touched on this last week, but it's the same thing, really, as the fruit of the Spirit that Paul will talk about in chapter 5. We don't just will ourselves to be more joyful or more patient or kinder, but that those things are a spiritual byproduct of a person who has the Holy Spirit, that the Lord is working in you and through you. Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? What Paul seems to be saying in this verse is that there's a certain social cost to becoming a follower of Christ that to truly live your life for Jesus, that there are ramifications in how others will view you. And that was certainly true in the first century when Christianity was a new movement. And so what Paul seems to be saying is that they'd already made that sort of social sacrifice by virtue of coming to faith and the gospel. And now they're willing to go through that just so that they can throw it away. And to Paul, that makes no sense. Verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He points to the works of God, both in the individual believer and among the body of believers, the church, that the Lord is active and at work. And why is that? Is it because of our adherence to the law? Or Is it in people who have received the gospel by faith? It's the same question he asks in verse 2. But a difference is that in verse 2, it's connected to coming to faith. In verse 5, it's more connected to the idea of remaining in the faith. We were dead in sin because we cannot follow the law, but new spiritual life is given by the one who fulfilled the law, and the Spirit finishes the work. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, Philippians 1-6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What a good God we have. Again, if it was up to us, we'd be doomed. But we're saved by grace through faith, and the Lord will carry us to the end when we truly believe in the gospel. If you're thinking that what you do or how good you are is the basis for God's love for you, you've got it wrong. And you're believing in something that is not the gospel. And I think of conversations I have with people, and I keep beating this drum because I know how hard that mentality can be to break. Where we think our standing with God is based on something that we do. Or where we can fall into this trap of making faith a law unto itself, where we feel like how strong our faith is or how good we are at having faith is the basis for Christ's justifying work. Paul gives us the answer in this passage. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Believing the gospel is knowing that you have a Savior who died for you and rose for you. And at that the death and resurrection of Jesus that it's something that's real to you and in your life. I borrowed this idea from Tim Keller. But the gospel is not just knowing about Jesus. Lots of people know about Jesus. That doesn't make them Christians. But knowing what Jesus has done and that he's done it for you. We were dead in sin because we could not follow the law, but new spiritual life is given by the one who fulfilled the law. So then how does a person who is a believer respond? If the law can't save us, does that mean that what we do doesn't matter? I touched on this last week. What we do doesn't save us. That's not to say that it doesn't matter. God wants us to live lives for him and to his glory. But to do that as people who know him and love him, not as people who think we can earn him. I think of my son. There's nothing he can do to earn my love. That doesn't mean that I'm apathetic or want him to be as bad as he can possibly be because I'll just love him anyway. That wouldn't be pleasing to me and it wouldn't be what was best for him. So this will be brief, but I close with a few responses to this passage. How do we live if we don't live by the law? First, the gospel. We begin with the gospel and living by faith. You believe in the gospel, and your faith impacts how you live, not the other way around. It's coming to God as sinful people, knowing that we have a gracious Savior who forgives us and invites us into life. Second, we live in God's ways. We follow what God desires for us. And I didn't say that thing first, because that's not our salvation. That's entirely based on the work of Christ. But to live a life in the wisdom of God, to live a life to bring glory to God, to live a life of the greatest fulfillment, because it's most in step with the will of God, to do that, we must walk in the ways of God. Lastly, third, we look to God. This morning, I was trying to figure out how to end this sermon, like I am most Sunday mornings, but this morning I was doing that too, and... I happen to be reading in Exodus chapter 34, it's a passage where the Israelites are going through some difficult times due to their own sin. After God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, the Israelites had quickly resorted back to idolatry, and they made an image of a golden calf to worship. In Exodus 34, Moses spends 40 days in the presence of the Lord, and at the end of the 40 days with God, Moses' face is shining, and people are terrified. Being with God is transformative to the point where Moses had to wear a veil. Paul picks up this idea in 2 Corinthians 3.18 where he says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We're not saved by the law but we're invited to experience and know the Lord God. And that is a foretaste of heaven. We do it as people who are imperfect and are living in a fallen world, but having a heart and mind and soul that are devoted to God, to knowing God, to looking to God, that that in itself is transformative. We do it through prayer, meditation, reflection, and having a mind said on the things above. Because of Christ, the veil is removed, and because of the Spirit, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. The Spirit works in us and transforms us. We were dead in sin because we cannot follow the law, but new spiritual life is given by the one who fulfilled the law. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, once again, we just praise you for your goodness. And Lord, in the times where we resort and slip up and fall into thinking that our works, our goodness is what makes you love us, Lord, even when we mess up in that way, may we know that there is grace. Lord, that it is entirely by the works of Christ that we are forgiven, and may we live lives in light of that to your glory, knowing that your Son has died and risen, and walking in step with the Spirit.